Right, um, another podcast today, a bit of an important one in my humble opinion, because it's something that being an emetophobia, ex-emetophobia sufferer that I could definitely relate to, we're sort of talking about why a past event, you know, i.e. I was on a long car journey and someone was sick on me and that's why I created my emetophobia, might not be the actual reason behind your emetophobia. So Rob, would love to dive into it today with you. You okay? You well? You ready to talk very about good. it? Very, very good. Very, very good. Thank you. I know these lights always make me look, you always look swarthy and, and, and cool and I always look yeah. like I'm on fire or something, but I'm sure you're going to do that in post- you know, I'll make sort it out. I'll, I'll make you look all handsome again. But all good, all good, mate. There. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, good. Okay, fantastic. Right, yeah. Let's have a bit of a, a bit of a chat about that topic. So essentially, I mean, it's it's a narrative that I hear a lot, and it's a narrative that I also used to to go with because it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, and that being, why do emetophobic sufferers like to believe that? there was a specific trigger, right, be it 20, 30, 40 years ago, that causes the emetophobia and the extreme anxiety and discomfort that I, emetophobia sufferers, experience every single day, why it's easier to believe that and why it feels so true. Could you, when you email me these things, right, say, Rob, let's do this thing, you make it <laughs> sound so simple, I just, just, just answer this one question and as you're asking it there i'm thinking crikey this is going to take this is quite that's quite a deep question quite a big question um okay so so first of all there 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 are various things there why does anybody want to believe anybody that's got any phobia want to believe they they know the specific time or date or cause of their phobia. Sure. Yeah, let's right? broaden it. Okay, yeah. so start yeah. with that. So first of all, as we've talked about on another podcast, any phobia, and that certainly includes metaphobia, but all phobias are essentially a fear of being out of control. Okay, they're a fear of letting go of control and being... Um, overrun consumed with one or other emotion normally fear and anxiety and vulnerability and this kind of stuff right so every phobia is essentially a fear of being out of control to the point where if they if they get to the the strength of belief where they think do you know what i cannot cope in that situation they have to avoid it and it becomes a phobia up until the point where you think i hate spiders but i could go in the cupboard that's not a phobia when you get to the point yep. where you say, Joe, I would rather die than go in that cupboard. I have to avoid yep. it. That's when I don't believe I could cope anymore. That's the definition of a phobia. Okay, so anyone with a phobia has a fear of being out of control and panicked and full of anxiety. So therefore, it's very natural and understandable that anyone with a phobia has spent significant time trying to figure it out trying to understand why, trying to yep. make sense of it, trying to get more control over it. You know, if if you'd been, if you'd experienced uh, being burgled late at night and it was terrifying, it'd be understandable if you spend two hours a day, you know, thinking about not being burgled again, preventing being burgled, or what you could do to cope better, this kind of stuff. So any yep. phobia is essentially a fear of being out of control, and therefore you are very likely 
to spend a lot of time trying to make sense of it, okay? And making sense of it and understanding it and making it predictable are kind of three slightly different slightly different things because you could be told oh your your fear of spiders would have happened in your childhood before the age of 12 because you were an emotional child right and that's you kind of understanding mm-hmm. it but that doesn't give you any more control you'd want to know more yep. than that you'd want to be able to pinpoint the exact day your older sister or older brother put that spider down the, the back of your neck and you panicked, and ever yep. since then you've had this phobia. So, secondly, then once you've got your own narrative, it started. That happened, didn't it? Because you had a smile then. That did happen. <laughs> yeah, I was just imagining. I couldn't, couldn't couldn't hide the smile as it creeped across my face as I was imagining it. Yeah. Okay. So then, once once you're age seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and you've got this story, this narrative of how your phobia started. And you've told a few dozen people and you keep telling the story every day. It becomes more and more believable and more and more kind of fact that that's what happened. So, yeah, you know, when I was a normal therapist for all those years, I can't remember a single time when I had someone with a phobia sat in front of me that didn't think they knew exactly when it started. Ask anyone, yeah. you know, who's got a phobia, anything from driving to flying cars, anything, cancer... They will tell you, oh, yeah, it all started because of this on this day and this thing. And almost always, I would say 99.9% of the time, they're wrong. That's just yep. them trying to feel more in control by by pinpointing something. You feel better about it when you can pinpoint it. Yeah, it gives you a yep. sense of control. So that's the first thing. That's why they might want to. Mm. Okay. Uh, in terms of um, In terms of what does cause it again every phobia is the same in that respect the person for some reason or another has generated enough anxiety about a particular situation enough times and to to to, to a, a powerful enough extent that they've convinced themselves they just cannot tolerate that again they wouldn't be able to cope with it and have to avoid it yep Sometimes, um, you know, I'm about to say there is a triggering event. I hate the word trigger, okay? It's, and it's the word that everyone uses, okay? Uh, and I'm trying desperately to think of a better word. So if any of your listeners can come up with one, please do. It's such a pejorative <laughs> term, okay? Because, because it comes from a gun, right? Obviously, trigger and gun. And it, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. saying basically that... There's this. There's been this loaded gun the whole time, Joe. Here is this loaded gun, just waiting. Here we go. Here's this loaded gun, just waiting. And all it took was someone to press the trigger, and it goes bang. So it suggests that the gun was already loaded. The problem already existed. Someone just needed yep. to press the trigger. And that's not true of any phobia at all. That's nonsense, okay? Yep. For the sake of argument, I'll use the word trigger now. Because um, that's the word people understand, but 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 it, it's not true. Okay, it's not true. Okay. So, yeah. what causes uh, um, uh, uh, any phobia is someone thinking about a situation enough in a catastrophic, powerless, helpless, um, frightened way 
to generate enough emotion that they get to the point where they just don't want to go there again. And to give an example, there's 12 million people in the UK with a fear of flying. None of them yep. have ever been in a plane crash. Okay? Yep. So at most, their phobia was caused by having a slightly turbulent flight once. When I say slightly turbulent, do you know how many aircraft have ever crashed out of turbulence? Zero. Okay? So it's not possible no. yep. that someone's had a frightening enough aeroplane flight to cause a phobia. There are just as many Irish people with a fear of snakes as English people. There's no snakes in Ireland. Okay? Lots of people have got fear of lifts. Do you know anyone has ever been locked in a lift for three days? So it, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense that way that it comes from a trigger. What does happen though is if you've got somebody where all the component parts are already in place, we've talked before that in order to create a metaphobia, it requires certain ingredients or components. You need to be bright, you need to be quite obsessive or a bit of a brooder, you need to be a bit of a catastrophizer, you need to have some black and white thinking. You need to have a strong desire for control, okay? You need to have some high disgust propensity. And there are various other components. If you've already got those things, and you're already a perfectionist as well, so if you're already, you know, a little bit, uh, 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 not a stress head, but the ability to get stressed quite quickly about things, it's then not going to take very much to trigger a response having said yeah. that and i can't remember what the most up-to-date research says but it certainly was eight percent of emetophobes have never ever been sick 16 percent don't ever remember being sick and the yeah. vast majority when questioned said that the last time they were sick it really wasn't that bad at all i don't know why i've still got it so it's got okay, nothing so to do just... with being sick if I could play devil's advocate here a Please. little bit, um, obviously part of what I bring to the table in these discussions that we're having, right, is being an exometophobe and obviously speaking to emetophobic sufferers every day as part of my practice. I want to be able to ask the questions where, you know, if there's metaphobes that are sitting on the end of this podcast, listening to on Spotify or on YouTube, and, you know, they want to put their hand up and ask a question, but obviously they can't. I want to try and ask those questions for them. So putting myself back into my shoes of when I had a metaphobia is, so if it's not about the quote unquote trigger, right? What if I could be sitting here today and saying, well, Rob, but what about the time when, you know, 10 years ago, my sister was sick on me when we were at the cinema, right? And my emetophobia after that point got significantly worse. I mean, this is a completely fictional story, right? But it's a narrative that a lot of people are going to be able to fit into their own, right? But if I could say, well, Rob, but after that incident, it did get so much worse you know, I was no longer able to go into big public spaces, let alone a cinema anymore, and my life spiraled out from that point onwards, then how could it possibly not be because of that moment? How could it not be about that event? Okay, okay. Well, that's a good question. So, again, you've, you, you've, got to, you've got to think that almost everybody is sick at some point, okay? So... Yep. Everyone has experienced 
how unpleasant vomiting can be. Okay? Yep. And yet, only 4 to 7% of the population of the world turn that into a phobia. Okay? So sure. I would say back to yeah. you that somewhere between 93 and 96% of people could have sat in that cinema that day and had your sister do what she did. Okay? And would have just gone, yep. oh, that's yucky. Go and have a wash. Take the jumper off and watch the rest of the film. Okay? Yes. Four yeah. to seven percent of people, as I just said a minute ago, who will already have a high disgust propensity that wouldn't just see that as a bit unpleasant, but might think, oh, my God, it was the most disgusting thing in the whole wide world. OK, but also the other thinking styles and behaviours and attitudes. Then after that event might go home and be thinking about it all day and re revisiting that experience all day yeah. and not sleep that night yeah. and brood about it for the next week. Okay. Whereas yeah. if it happened to the other ninety-three to ninety-six percent, they'd have gone home and laughed about it. Do you know what happened yesterday? This happened in the cinema and blah 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 blah, and never thought about it again. Okay. Yes. That's why. Yeah. But it also goes back to if you think about it, you're a lot young. You're a little bit younger than me. Okay. Most of my friends my age have had some kind of car crash. Right. When I say car crash, some kind of ding in their car. You know, it doesn't have to be something yep. horrible or, you know, someone being injured, but they've knocked into a wall or someone's knocked into them or something like that. I don't know any of my friends that have got fear of driving. Yep, yep. Okay. And I don't remember ever being consulted or asked to be referred by any member of the public ever that had a phobia of driving. Okay. And the reason for that is, mm -hmm. however unpleasant or scary it was, people are kind of forced to drive for their jobs and their family and everything else. So they tend to get back in the car the next day because they can't avoid it. And, of course, yep. you get back in the car the next day, it's proved to you that it was a one-off. You get over it within a few days. You might be a bit nervous the second and third time you drive afterwards, but you get over it. I do, yep, and I have been consulted in the past, by people with a fear of motorway driving. And that's probably only because motorways can still be avoided in the UK. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Try hard enough. All right. Yep. One final statistic on that. You are no more likely to develop a metaphobia. In fact, you're less likely to develop a metaphobia if you go through chemotherapy for cancer. Okay, so if you went through chemotherapy, which almost always includes you being ill a few times each time you go through about a chemo, okay, you are no more likely to develop a metaphobia after after being ill three or four times a week for maybe several weeks. Okay, in fact, yep. it's almost likely to cure you of it if you ever had it. Yeah. Okay. So the trigger doesn't exist the notion yeah. of there being a trigger what you could say is something at some point in time was evidence enough for that person to change the way they think about a situation significantly enough to develop it into a, a, a phobia yeah, yeah. One, one of the go, one yeah. of the reasons why, um, one of the reasons why there's 12 million people in the UK with a fear of flying, which is a, a very high statistics, right? 
That's a fear of flying, by the way, not a phobia. I haven't got any stats on a phobia, but a fear of flying, 12 million. Okay. Mm. Why would there be 12 million people with a fear of flying? Because the vast majority of people don't fly very often. Yeah. If you think about it, the vast majority of people in the world probably never fly at all. The vast majority yep. of people fortunate enough to live in countries like the UK or the States might fly, I don't know, two or four times in a year might be average, I guess, once you're over the age of 15. Yep. Let's say let's say you go on holiday twice a year, uh, Joe Average, right? That's yep. four flights a year. That's one every three months. Okay, That's not enough yep. to help you get over your anxiety about flying. If you flew every, if you had anxiety, if you had a fear of flying and you flew every day for a month, you'd be over your fear of flying. Yep. Okay. Yep. So lots of cabin crew that, that do the training to become cabin crew are, are anxious about flying when they first become cabin crew within three or four months yep. of, of being cabin crew, all their flying anxiety goes. And you know that, you see that, don't you? When you do fly, and you might be on a bumpy flight one day, you just come back from skiing, right? You might be on a bumpy flight, and you think, Craig, that's a bit bumpy. What's going on here? And yet the cabin crew are wandering mm. up and down, smiling, having a laugh. And you think, are they pretending? Do they know something I don't? Yep. So yep. exposing yourself to a, a feared situation and processing it in a helpful, adaptive way will yep. almost always help you to overcome whatever that thing is that you feared. Yeah, and, and just, I know it's, I mean, it's on topic of what we're talking about right now, but it's slightly off topic of what the overarching topic of today's podcast is. But just for anyone that might have listened to our podcast on why exposure therapy doesn't help emetophobia compared to what we have just discussed on, can you just clarify the difference between that and why pure exposure therapy to overcome metaphobia isn't helpful just succinctly for people listening. Yes. Okay. So as I said a few minutes back, uh, any phobia is caused by your thinking styles, your attitudes, your beliefs, how well you regulate your emotions, manage your emotions, all this sort of stuff. But essentially it's a fear of being emotionally out of control or feeling emotionally out of control. So emetophobes particularly have lots of unhelpful thinking styles that are related to their emetophobia. Um, and, and, And they are sufficient enough in number and sufficient enough in strength that even if they do have a bout of illness for a week, okay, it's not going to get them over their phobia because their thinking and, and the number of unhelpful beliefs they've got are so vast, so many and so strong that it's not yep. enough to get them over it. Even though the week after they've been ill for a week, they will say to you, you know, that their emetophobic friends will say, oh my God, how was it? How was it? Was it terrible? And they'll go, do you know, it really wasn't that bad. Were you over it then? No, it's as bad as it ever was. Because they're, ex- they're allowing themselves to experience it but they're not changing the way they think about it. And they're not changing the way they think about it because it's not as simple as driving a car on the road, going in the cupboard and picking up a spider. You know, spiders yep. are just yep. a bit scary, okay? Emetophobia, you know, we talk about there's 26 different components driving emetophobia. You know, there's 10 different thinking styles. There's several beliefs. There's... Um, <clears throat> disgust propensity there is 
social anxiety there are there are usually some self-esteem issues particularly around control that there, there are coping skills that are, that are lacking that you know there's all kinds of stuff lots and lots of different components driving it which is why yep. if you just expose yourself to it it's not going to go yep yep there's too, there's too much it's too complex it's- for, for for such a simple um um attempt at resolution yeah Yeah. cool yeah fantastic thank you yeah that clarifies it nicely um and obviously the clarification is necessary so that people aren't coming away from these podcasts you know hearing one thing thinking another way we want to make this as simple and as straightforward as possible so that you truly can start to you know let that belief creep in a little bit that maybe you can overcome this by doing the right steps. Fantastic. Anything more to add on your part? I think we've covered that topic nicely. I could add a, a tiny bit in as much as on one of the other yeah. podcasts we talked about, we, 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 we created, we talk about why you should do this program first before you do anything else. And that relates yes. back to these 26 components. Okay. So some of those components I've just described, some of those others are things like learned helplessness, excuse me, fear of never getting over it, okay? Well, if you've got a fear, if you feel helpless, and you, which you're bound to if you've got a metaphobia because it's horrible, right? If you've got a metaphobia and you feel helpless and you really worry that you're never going to get over it, the last thing you want to do is try several other therapies and interventions that aren't going to work. Or, or yep. being yep. slightly fairer, very, very unlikely to work. Okay, Because each time you try and do something that doesn't work, your helplessness becomes stronger, and you become more and more hopeless in terms of you have less and less hope you're ever going to get better. And therefore, any the next therapy or intervention you try, you're going to put less effort in because you don't believe it's going to work. So you don't want to run yep. through, as this lady that you and I were talking about just now, which, which this lady that I had a little session with last week is going to be over her metaphobia in the next three or four weeks, and she's going to do a brilliant testimonial all about it. And she's been to every therapy, every type of therapist on the planet, okay? None yep. of them helped. And each time she tried something new, she was worse because, of course, she's tried this, and, and I feel a little less hopeful. It's like someone going through uh, um, chemo for cancer, and every time they try a new drug and it doesn't work, of course you're going to be more hopeless and helpless hmm. and yep. despair more and be less hopeful that, that you're ever going to get a cure. So this is why it's so important yep. that people, if they're, if they're going to do something, they do this first, because this is... By a long, long, long shot, the most likely thing to get them over their emetophobia. Yep. Because of the thinking styles and beliefs and attitudes that I talked about just now. That's that's the link. Yep, yep. And addressing them and allowing you to actually fundamentally challenge and change them. Before you before you close off, can I tell you something exciting that you probably yes. don't know yet? 
me that I don't know yet. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. So I've got a. I've recently put a, a team together of of coaches that are all uh, exometophobes themselves, and some members of the public that are exometophobes, and some current sufferers of metaphobia. And what we're going to be doing, Joe, over the next six months to a year, is putting together an entire support package, right, for yep. anyone of any age with a metaphobia. That's little kids, that's grandparents, that's parents that want to help their kids over it, kids that want to help their parents over it, uh, support materials for teachers, doctors, psychotherapists. We're going to create a resource so that every single thing you could possibly need or want to help you overcome it, you've got. And that's all going to be done over the next kind of six to eight months. And it's it's for me, it's really, really exciting because we just want to create everything you could possibly need we're gonna we're gonna create we're gonna build for them fantastic so i go skiing for one week and you brainstorm up and cook up all of these new ideas i had a bit of spare time what can i tell you <laughs> good brilliant well it sounds fantastic and when i was going through the program years ago it would have been something that i can absolutely imagine i would have benefited from hugely and definitely something that clients that i work with today would look at and work alongside with that would be very beneficial. So the more we can put out there, the more that we can help these poor emetophobia sufferers move past it and crack on with their lives, the better. So brilliant. Good to hear. Lovely to see you, mate. And I'll see you again soon.